Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus Christ is our perfect sacrifice, that in him, Lord, we died, and in him, Lord, we live. I thank you so much, Father, we get to learn from your word. Bless us, Lord. We need your help to understand your word, and we ask for it, Lord. For your glory, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the student life is full, is full of tests. Math tests, history tests, essays. They're all a test of what you know and how well you know it. Whatever the test, the format's pretty much the same. The test has questions, and you have to provide the answers, right? The hardest test I ever took was in college. It was a math final my freshman year, and we had three hours to solve eight problems. <clears throat> so whenever I take a test, the first thing I do is I go through and I try to find the easy problems, the ones I know how to do, and just get those done with first, right? So the first page, don't know how to do that. Second page, don't know how to do that. Third page, don't know how to do that. All the way to the end of the test, where I realize I have no idea how to do any of the problems. Hardest test of my life. Now, I don't know if that was a good test or a bad test, but it was really, really hard. In our passes, Jesus is presented with three tests. Three hard tests. Three impossible tests. And the tests were designed by the questioners not to see what Jesus knew, not to see what Jesus would teach them, but to make Jesus look dumb. They were not questions that wanted a good answer. They are questions with no good answer. Right. And we'll find that these people were Jesus' enemies. Now, we talked about this a long, long time ago. But remember the parable about, like, a vineyard and, like, you know, this guy coming and <clears throat> coming and giving the vineyard to these servants, and the servants beat up all of his servants, beat up all of the people he sends, even his own son? Kind of ring a bell anywhere? Yeah? So, Jesus had told this parable against these people, and these people didn't like it. Didn't like it. So this, what they thought, is payback time. It's time to get back at Jesus, right? Now think with me. Is challenging Jesus a good idea? No. No, right? It's incredibly dumb. He's wiser than Solomon. He's a more compassionate prophet than Jonah. He's a greater king than David. He's the author of creation. He knows everything. And so these little puny humans are going to challenge Jesus and try to beat him. So what do you think is going to happen? Who's going to win? Jesus is going to win, of course. Jesus is going to win. The only question is, how? How would Jesus answer these questions? How would he pass these impossible tests? The main idea for today is that by passing three impossible tests, the Lord Jesus proves that he is our perfect Savior. By passing three impossible tests, the Lord Jesus proves that he is our perfect Savior. The first question that I ask him is in verse 13. The question is, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Look at verse 13 with me. And they said to him, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So these are the bad guys, Herodians and Pharisees. The Pharisees are the primary teachers of Israel. They're kind of like the Bible, they're kind of like the pastors of Jewish congregations. They wanted to trap him. The kind of language that they use here is that they want to be like wolves lurking in the dark, seeking to pounce on Jesus and destroy him. Usually when you ask questions of a teacher, you're trying to learn from them, right? Not these guys. They wanted to kill him. But of course they can't just like come out and say that because that's, I don't know, that's too, too forward. So they got to be sneaky. So instead they say this, look at verse 14. They came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. This is called flattery. You guys know what flattery means? 
Yeah, flattery is when you say lies to make someone feel better, right? Like, oh, you're so like good at this. You're so funny. When you really think, no, they're not funny. They're really no, they're like the worst, right? That's what they're doing. They're trying to butter him up. They're trying to flatter him. And then they continue. They ask the question: Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them, or should we not? Now, who pays taxes here? Cool. So all the adults pay taxes. The kids probably don't. Did you pay taxes? Really? You pay taxes? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, if you were a typical Jew in the Roman Empire in the first century, you would have some really strong opinions about taxes. The reason is, is because the Roman Empire had dominated Israel, had come and ruled over your land. They were your masters, and they forced you to pay money to live on your own land. You wouldn't like that. You hated that. Some Jews hated this so much, a few decades before Jesus, they actually had started a revolt against the Roman Empire. Because they believed that to pay taxes to Rome was to rob God of the glory he deserved. The revolt failed, but there were still Jews in Jesus' day called zealots. And these zealots were infamous for murdering any Jew who supported Roman rule. Those zealots. So when the Pharisees asked Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're laying a trap. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then the Jews would see him as a supporter of Rome, and therefore a traitor of Israel. And so the Jews would then turn on him and maybe even murder him. If Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then the Roman Empire would see Jesus as a traitor, an enemy, just like another uh, Jewish rebel, and the Romans would kill him for his treason. So you see, he's stuck, right? In the Pharisees' mind, either way... Jesus loses, and they win. What would Jesus do? Look at verse 15. Verse 15, he says, But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, that's an ancient silver coin, and let me look at it. And they brought him one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus saw through their flattery, he knew they are hypocrites, and now he's going to expose their hatred. The Roman tax was paid with a denarius. A denarius is like, kind of like the size of a dime. Um, it's made out of silver. It's got the stamp, just like you know, we have stamps of famous people on our coins. The stamp of Caesar. He's the ruler of the Roman Empire. <clears throat> and then Jesus says, after looking at this denarius, he says, render or give to Caesar, in verse 17, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Yes, Nathan? Um. Wait, do they have to change the coin every time a different emperor sends them? Uh, this emperor, new emperors would coin, would probably mint new coins, but I don't know actually how long this emperor reigned. I think it was a different emperor than, it's not Nero for sure. Anyways, good question. Um, so, they pay the tax with this denarius, right? And Jesus says, okay, who's on the denarius? I have to ask you, who's on the quarter? Good, good, good. George Washington, good. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so the coin, the coin was stamped with Caesar's likeness. It looked like him, right? It had his name on it. And therefore, if it's got his name and his picture on it, who does it belong to? It belongs to Caesar. It belongs to Caesar. So Jesus says, okay, if Caesar asks, asks for it, then give it back to him, because it already belongs to him. In this, Jesus affirmed that Rome has the right to demand taxes from the Jews. But he continues. He says, and give back to God the things that are God's. But what does he mean? 
Well, the denarius had been stamped with the image and likeness of Caesar, proving that Caesar owned the denarius. What has been stamped with the image and likeness of God? Everything. Everything. No. You. Good, you. We read Genesis 1 earlier, right? Genesis 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in a sense, we're like coins that have been stamped with the image of God. That doesn't mean you look like God physically. It does mean, though, you have value simply because God has put his name, put his image upon every single one of you. And that means you have inestimable, unimaginable worth. That means your ethnicity, your beauty, your money, your language, your heritage, your skill, your popularity, your grades, your failures, your shortcomings, do not change the fact that you're made in the image of God. And therefore, do not change the value of your person. Even if you feel like the ugliest person in the world, and you're not, you're still loved. You have the stamp of God upon you. Even if you feel like the most useless person in the world, and you're not, you're beloved. You're worthy because the shape of the divine is stamped upon you. Even if you feel like the stupidest person in the world, and you're not, you're still valuable. You have the mark of your creator upon you. The fact that we're stamped with the image of God means that we have greater value than we could ever achieve for ourselves. It means you don't have to prove you're worthy of love. It means you don't have to succeed in order to increase your value. You're made after God's likeness, period, whether you're male or female. And nothing you do can ever change that. Can I ask your question after this? Being made in God's image also means that we belong entirely to him. As one pastor says, God owns us. That means he has supreme right to claim our lives as his own. So then, we're to give to God the things that are God's, including our lives, our liberty, our possessions, and our affections. That means our feelings, your emotions, or your desires. That's the duty of every Christian. So that's the first test the Pharisees bring to Jesus. They thought they could, they could trap him by asking him a question about paying taxes, by forcing him to choose between being loyal to God and loyal to Rome. But Jesus answers perfectly, teaching that, yeah, the government can demand your money, but God demands everything from you because all that you are belongs to him. Question number two is whose wife will she be? Whose wife will she be? Who's married here? No one? Okay, one. It's like a few people married. <laughs> All right, so obviously only the leaders are married. If you're junior high and you're married, that's like not okay. All right. <laughs> but we're going to talk about marriage, all right? Now, look at verse 18, look at verse 18. And Sadducees came to Jesus who say there is no resurrection. Okay? No resurrection. They, say, they think that after you die, you stay dead. No life after the grave. No body. No bodily resurrection. In addition to not believing in the resurrection, the Sadducees also believed only in five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. After that, they said, nope, not real. Not from God. So they only accepted five books of the Bible. And they came to Jesus asking the question, verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, believes no child 
the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is referring to Deuteronomy 25, which is a real book in the Bible, Deuteronomy 25. And basically, this is God's way of perpetuating the family of that deceased husband. But they take that command, and they try to make it ridiculous by talking about the, res the resurrection. Look at verse 10. They said, okay, okay, okay. A man, oh, there were seven brothers. The first one took a wife, got married, and when he died, he left no offspring, no children. Then the second took her, got married to her, and he died, leaving no children. And the third likewise, and implied fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh, right? The seven left no offspring, no children. Last of all, the woman died. And here's their question. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For all seven had had her as wife. Now, that's ridiculous, right? Can you imagine one wife having seven husbands? That's crazy, right? And they're like, this is so weird. Like, how, how can the resurrection be true if that means someone would have seven husbands? This is ridiculous. Therefore, the resurrection cannot be real. That was their argument, okay? <clears throat> so, on the one hand, Jesus is now put into, excuse me, another, on, in another way, Jesus is put into choosing between a rock place, a hard place, and a rock. He cannot say Deuteronomy 25 is wrong, right? It's, it's the word of God. He also cannot deny the resurrection because he himself is taught that he will die and that three days later he will rise again from the dead. Can I answer a question after the sermon? So then, what would he do? What would Jesus do? Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? I mean, ouch. That's like saying to Steph Curry, do you not even know basketball? Like, who are you? Right? Of course, Steph Curry is supposed to know basketball. Of course, the Sadducees are supposed to know the scriptures. And yet, Jesus says, no, you're wrong. You don't understand the Bible, and you don't understand God. Then he answers the question, verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, he says, the resurrection is real, and there is no marriage in the resurrection. Whose wife will this hypothetical woman be? None of them. She'll have no husband at all. Because in eternity, in resurrection, there's no more marriage. Why? Because in heaven, marriage has been superseded by a better relationship, by a perfect relationship with the perfect God that lasts forever. Now, there are only a few married people in here, so I'm talking mostly unmarried people. But whether you're married or unmarried, this is actually, and whether you want to be married or you think boys and girls are gross, this actually is a great comfort for us. It's a great comfort for us because it teaches us that marriage is not eternal. And therefore, marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is not ultimate. Instead, your relationship with God is forever. And therefore, your relationship with God is ultimate. We live in an age obsessed with a lot of romance, right? Dating and marriage. I mean, all the songs we listen to, manga, anime, movies, late night talks, it all revolves around like, who do you like or like who are you going to get married to or blah, 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 all that stuff. Right? Any nods? No? Okay, well, maybe the stuff I'm listening to. <clears throat> marriage is important to God. Right? Marriage is really important to God. But you know what's more important? Your relationship with Him. Your relationship with Him. Because even if you got married really young, when you die, your marriage will end. But when you die as a Christian, your relationship with Him will last forever in fullness of joy. Jesus continues in verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, 
how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You, Sadducees, are quite wrong. Jesus points out here that God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He doesn't say, I was the God of Isaac. He says, I am the God of Abraham. Now, even though Abraham is dead. Why? Because God knew Abraham, God still knows Abraham, and God will forever know Abraham. He's the God of the living, those who last, who live forever in relationship with God. In the same way, the relationship God has with his people, with those of us who believe, is not just, just for this life. It's not just for, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, even 100 years of your life. It's for forever. Forever. And that's a wonderful thing. As David writes in Psalm 16, You made known to me the path of life. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the relationship that God invites us into. Fullness of joy, pleasures forever with Him. And these joys and these pleasures don't just last a few 60, 70 years. They last forever. Forever. When we die, we won't stay as like floating ghosts or this, like, you know, disembodied spirits floating around in heaven. We'll receive new bodies in a new earth in the presence of God, face to face with Him, enjoying Him, the God who loves us and knows us. Forever. Forever. Day after day, millennium after millennium, we will only grow in our delight and love for the infinite God who loved us first and gave His Son for us. That's way better than marriage. And marriage is good. It's actually way better than everything. So what's your relationship with God like? Would you describe it as joyful, as full of pleasure, happy? God invites us to come and find our highest happiness in Him. In the second test, the Sadducees mocked the resurrection of the dead for presenting a ridiculous hypothetical situation about a wife with seven husbands. But, God, but, but Jesus turns their argument on its head and teaches there is no marriage in heaven, and actually the resurrection life with Jesus is so much better even than marriage. Okay, last question, last test. Question number three. Which commandment is most important? Look at verse 28 with me. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered well, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, the job of a scribe was to study the Bible and be considered an expert in the law. He's like a Bible nerd, and it's like his job, right? So being a Bible nerd, he often debated with other Bible nerds, what's the most important commandment in the whole Bible? Now, they had counted 613 commandments. The 365 no's. In 248, yeses, do this. Which commandment is the most important? So what would you say? Of all the commandments in the Bible, which commandment is the most important commandment? Where did, they, where did they find all these? In the Old Testament. Wow. Any guesses? Any answers? What's the most important commandment in the whole Bible? Well, the commandments are promises. Commandments are promises, okay. Go to Mira. God? Always love God. Good. Um, no, 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 they're all equally important. None of them are all equally important. Good answer. Don't end your life. Don't end your life. Okay, so don't don't end your life. That's good. 
All right, one more. Whatever. <laughs> 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 no, that's good. You got it, Seth. You got it. <laughs> all right, good, good. So verse 29. Look at verse 29. <laughs> Jesus answered, The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So if you've been around Lighthouse for, you know, for a while, you probably know these commandments. We often summarize it as, you know, love God, love people. That was a really, really good summary of the Christian life. Love God, love people. I want to point out three things about how this summary actually misses the point, or can miss the point of what Jesus is saying here. First, first thing, Jesus' answer to the question is not, oh, the most important commandment is love God. That's not his answer, right? What does he start with? He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, why do, you, why do you think he starts like that? That's not a command, right? Or I guess it's a command like hear stuff. But what, what is he doing there? That's a quote from Deuteronomy 6. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 6. And it's absolutely crucial we understand that this comes first. This comes first. This declaration, this truth, is the foundation for all of Christian living. And the foundation is this. It's not just the Lord God that you're supposed to love. It's the Lord, our God. It's not just the Lord God, the God somewhere out there, but the Lord, our God. God had saved Israel. He's the one that loved them before they did anything good. So before the command, love God, before the command, love people, it's actually, think of God's great love for you. That's the foundation for all the commands in the scriptures. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The same exact pattern is actually found also in the New Testament. In 1 John 4, it says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We didn't love God first, but He loved us. Christianity isn't about what you can do for God. It's not about you going to church. It's not about you reading the Bible. not about you praying. Those are good things. But Christianity is about you responding to the joyful God who loved us first. You must know his love if you would ever have a chance or hope of loving him in return. So do you know the love of God? Do you know the love of God? Second thing, Jesus doesn't just say, the first commandment is to love God. As Seth said so well, Jesus says instead, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The word all is repeated four times. Why? For emphasis, right? He's like shouting it over and over again. All, 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 all. All that you are is to love the Lord your God. The love that God demands, the love that God deserves is total. All of you. It's the highest devotion, 100% commitment, wholehearted worship, to love God, not for what he can do for you, not because you want to get something from him, but simply, as one commentator says, to seek God for his own sake, to have pleasure in him. That's the most important commandment. To love God with all that you are, to the max, all the time. That's what he deserves. Do you love God like that? 
Third, Jesus doesn't just say, the second commandment is love people. Instead, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In this, he specifies both who we're to love and how we are to love them. How we are to love them. He says who? That means your neighbor, right? You're supposed to love your neighbor. This makes the command very concrete and inescapable. Here's the thing. It's really easy to love generic humanity. Really easy to love generic humanity. But to love your neighbor, it's a lot harder. Man, imagine with me that after this, we go in and out together, right? <clears throat> and you walk up to In-N-Out, and the cashier is being kind of slow. And let's say you turn around and you yell at me, Keith, this cashier's so annoying! <laughs> right? Or let's say your dad is there. He's like, Daddy, the cashier's slow. Make him hurry up. Or let's say you yell to Pastor Eric, Pastor Eric, the cashier messed up my order. Wow, cashier, you're the worst. Go away. Right? That'd be ridiculous, right? Like, none of you would do that. I hope. It's so rude. It's so rude. But, but, isn't that exactly what we say against our own family members? Against the ones that we claim we love the most? Is that what we say when we say, man, my brother's so annoying. Or my sister's, like, just, I, I hate my sister. That's what we're doing. We're failing to love our neighbor. And think about it. Like They literally live in the same house as you, or the same apartment as you. They're the closest neighbors you'll ever have. Right? Jesus doesn't just say, you need to love people in general. He says, you need to love your neighbor, and that includes the people that are hardest for you to love. Jesus doesn't only say who we're to love, which means everyone. He also specifies how we're to love them. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. In that he actually assumes you love yourself a ton. And that's really true. When you're born, I guarantee you that as a baby, you do not cry out of compassion for your poor parents who are staying up late to, to uh, serve you and to feed you, right? You cry because you were hungry, because you had a dirty diaper, because you wanted to be picked up. All you wanted was what you wanted. You didn't care about them. You just wanted them to take care of you. Right? What I mean is that babies are cute, but babies are also downright selfish. That's not just true of babies, though. That's true of you and true of me right now. We're naturally bent to serving ourselves, to pleasing ourselves, to glorifying ourselves. I mean, this is why we care what others think about us. This is why we're concerned about how we look. This is why we're anxious that bad things will happen to us. This is why we want to be the best in school. This is why we want to love being, this is why we love being winners. This is why we hate when things don't go our way. This is why we put ourselves first. It's because we are, by nature, selfish. You love you, and I love me. Without even thinking, we're committed to our own selves. And so Jesus says, you're to love your neighbor as you love yourself. With that same level of commitment, with that same level of thoughtfulness, with that same level of zeal and of energy and of just desire right? to do good, not for yourself, but to other people. Scripture even says we're to consider other people as more important than ourselves. I mean, how much do you think about what you want? I think about that all the time, all day. Like, what do I want to eat for dinner? You know, oh, I'm kind of tired. I want to take a nap. Like, that's, all, that's what we're dominated by. And you know, Jesus says you should love your neighbor even as you love yourself. So, do you love your enemies like that? 
Do you love your parents like that? Do you love your siblings like that? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Verse 32. The scribe said to Jesus, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that God is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much, much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. The scribe provides a very surprising end to these three questions. He actually affirms Jesus' answer. He's not Jesus' enemy anymore. And he even says, yeah, the commandment to love God with all that we are, to love people as our own selves, is actually more important than the sacrifices. And remember, this is in the temple. They can, like, smell the sacrifices being burnt. He says, no, 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 no. Love for God and love for people is more important even than that. What God wants is not just part of you, but all of you. When you do something for God, or when you give something to God, he gets part of you, sure. But when you love him with all that you are, he gets all. In this third test, Jesus teaches the two great commandments. As a response to God's love, we're to love God with all that we are, and to love others as we love ourselves. This is the point of the entire commandments of God. So in this passage we've looked at so far, we have three tests and three questions. Jesus passes them flawlessly. 100%, A+, it wasn't even hard for him. Somehow, really miraculously, he navigated these really tricky, impossible questions. But in this teaching, he also presents us with three tests. He presents us with three questions. Here's question number one. Do you live as one who belongs entirely to God, giving all your time, resources, talents, and energies to him? Question number two. Do you find your highest pleasure and delight in God and the things of God above all else? Meaning scripture, prayer, a fellowship with Jesus, preaching the gospel, serving God's people. That's your highest joy at all times. Question number three. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? And do you love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus passed his test perfectly. We fail miserably. Miserably. No one has ever done any of these things for even one minute of their life. Let alone their whole life as God deserves. We fail miserably. And in this, Jesus not only shows us our great need for righteousness, but he also shows us that he's the only one that can meet that need. We celebrated a Good Friday last week, right? Or two weeks ago. We celebrate death, the death of Jesus Christ. Our Good Friday corresponds to the Jewish holiday of something called Passover. You guys heard it before? Passover, right? Moses puts the blood on the lintel and the Lord God passes over the people of Israel. The Passover is the most important holiday in the Jewish calendar. <clears throat> and on that holiday, they sacrifice one lamb. One perfect, blameless lamb as their Passover lamb to pay for the sins of the nation of Israel. Before sacrificing that lamb, the Jews would take it and inspect it to make sure it was perfect. No broken bones, no sickness, no deformities. To be an acceptable sacrifice to God, it must be perfect. That's exactly what is happening in our passage here. 
Jesus is our Passover lamb. And these Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, and scribes are trying to find some fault with him, trying to find some problem with him. But Jesus shows himself to be blameless. Perfect. He passes every single one of their tests. And he shows himself to be righteous. The conclusion then, after these questions, Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb. Remember, it's Tuesday in our text. On Friday, they'll kill him. On Passover. And by that one death, he paid the penalty for sins. Not just for the nation of Israel, but for all of his people, including us here who believe. And three days later, he resurrected from the dead as champion over sin, victorious over the grave, savior of the world. This is the perfect savior. The one who doesn't just answer hard questions and make a fool out of these enemies of his, but one actually who demonstrates that he is the only one who can save us from our sin. The only perfect sacrifice. So is Jesus your sacrifice? Is Jesus your Passover lamb? Is he your savior? Can you not just say that Jesus died for sinners, you know, out there, but actually say that Jesus died for me and for my sin? More than anything, that's what we want for you. That's what we beg of God for you. And I plead for you to believe in this Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the perfect Lamb of God, that he was slain for our sins, and that he rose again from the dead three days later, and now, Lord, we get to celebrate the eternal life we have in him. All it takes, Lord, is trusting you. You don't ask us to bring you gifts or to bring you good works, for that, Lord, surely is worthless in your eyes. You ask us simply to trust you. So I ask, Father, for those here who are not Christians, who are not believers, who do not love nor know you, Lord, I pray that you would cause them to believe. I pray for us, Lord, that do believe, that do love you, and that tremble, Lord, at your word and want to obey you, that we would see that we still need Christ as our Savior, that we are not one ounce better than we were the moment we first believed, as if we're strong, Lord, that we still need the sacrifice. And you help us to love him all the more as he deserves with all that we are and in love, Lord, our neighbors as we love ourselves. For your great glory, our good God. I thank you so much, Father, for every single person here. I pray that you encourage them, you'd help them, that small groups will be full of joy and deep and honest discussion. Father, would you honor yourself? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.